Rhonda Nowak for the Mail Tribune and Rosebud Media. This is the Literary Gardener for September 26, 2021. This episode is the second in a series of podcasts called Women's Work with Plants in the Rogue Valley. I'll be talking with a variety of extraordinary local women who are increasing access to gardens, gardening, plants, or healthy plant-based food. Today, I'm talking with Christy Mackison. She owns and operates Shooting Star Nursery in Central Point with her husband, Scott. Shooting Star specializes in locally grown plants suitable for our Southern Oregon climate. Christy's also a landscape designer and has designed and installed gardens across the Rogue Valley. She also has helped design and install several local school gardens featuring edible pollinator and native plants. Welcome, Christy. You sure are a very busy lady. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, with two kids in the mix, and there's always plants never rest, so there's there's lots to do. Yeah, I bet. So, let's start with your plant journey. You started out in architecture and then decided to make a change and started working in plant nurseries. Yes, um, I went to school and college for architecture and started working in architecture thinking that kind of brought together my interests, which it did, but when I saw sort of the reality of what architects do day to day, drafting at the computer, I just thought this is not what I want to be doing long term, so I, I took a break and started volunteering at some nurseries in Portland and then working at some nurseries and got a very good education there just because you get to immerse yourself in the plants because I didn't necessarily know a lot about plants I knew that I liked them and I liked doing design and making spaces um, so then I got to learn more about plants by just working at nurseries and answering people's questions and seeing so many cool unusual plants that I wanted to know more about and so that just sort of started the the disease that is known as plant lust. We all have it. The plant lust. Yeah. I love it. So when it did never, you... It never, it never ends. <laughs> when did you move to the Rogue Valley? And so then my husband Scott and I moved to the Rogue Valley in 2004. After, just soon after we got married, had the opportunity to buy some property and eventually build a house, which is something we always wanted to do and knew we wouldn't be able to do that so easily in Portland. And so moved down here and had property and decided to start a nursery and thinking that that could incorporate some landscape design eventually. That's something I could do as part of it, but just started a wholesale nursery and quickly became retail oriented as well. And grew organically from there every every year after, not necessarily knowing you know, what the final end result was going to be, but we seemed to time it pretty well and um, well going before we had kids in the mix, too. Every time I go to Shooting Star, I am amazed at the variety of plants there, and I always feel like I can find something that I know will actually grow in my garden. Uh, so what started you on the path to providing lots of pollinator plants and uh, native plants at the nursery? Yeah, um, I mean, it just makes sense. It makes sense to have things that are, 
one going to do well here? So we started to grow more and more ourselves here at the nursery, especially when we got our head gardener, Eric, to join us. We could grow more of varieties that we wanted to grow that made sense for here, because sometimes it might have been hard to find them out in the big world of plant growers, say, that are more up in the Willamette Valley. So we had a little more control over what we could offer. Um, then they're grown on site, so they're used to the conditions we have in the Rogue Valley, which is, are quite different from, say, even California or up north in the Willamette Valley. And so we wanted things that made sense for this valley, of course, and then you, it totally makes sense to follow the native route and have pollinator-friendly plants. There's so many great choices. But anything we can do to support pollinators has always been a big interest of ours. It's so fun to just see what shows up when you plant something. It's amazing. <laughs> You're like, where did you come from? And there's, you know, ten kinds of bees or pollinators on this one solidago. And so it's just amazing to see what, what shows up. Um, so that's always been, a, I guess, a big interest of ours and to have things that bloom as long as possible. So we're always choosing varieties. I think through that lens, and maybe that ties into that I do design work as well, and I'm an, a gardener, so I'm going to choose things that fulfill all those needs. So multi, like it's very multi-purpose plants is what we're always after. Absolutely, absolutely. I think multi-purpose plants are the way to go, especially. Yeah, if- why waste space? Or something that blooms two weeks and then kind of block for the rest of the year doesn't offer anything else so right I think I'm always looking for well and more and more lately I am I'm looking for plants that uh, are, are beautiful produce flowers but also produce food yes and I have a soft spot for edibles too <laughs> I'm always I if can eat something on it I'm definitely interested in that and so we do a lot of fruit trees and during bare root season and berries and then maybe other things you wouldn't always think of as fully edible or don't come to mind right away we don't do annual vegetables and things that are particular nursery but there's so many ways to integrate edibles and have yeah multi-purpose gardens and one, one of those things might be, you know, like a service berry. It's a beautiful multi-trunk tree, and you get these really delicious little berries. And, again, they're not maybe super common, but they have a little bit of a flavor like a blueberry, and they get gorgeous full color and white flowers in the spring. And so, you know, can't be- go wrong with something like that. And because they're native, they are, uh, they are they're supporting our native wildlife, too, the service berries. Yes, yeah, and then you can coordinate right with the pollinators that are around are going to be more attracted to or or in tune with the seasons of when things bloom. And so I think there's a place for natives for sure, but then I would say there's a lot of similar varieties that might make sense to add in as well that will also support pollinators, especially through, you know, a long season Um, because some natives, need a particular place in the landscape to be planted they just can't go you know out in the wide open anywhere so i'd say sometimes natives have a little bit more of a microclimate that they might need to ultimately be happy which is fine if you have it that's a really good point now uh, 
you know, usually planting um, shrubs and trees is recommended in the, you know, in, uh, in spring, early spring. Um, but is fall a good time in Southern Oregon to also plant our shrubs and trees? Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, we're always kind of trying to get in this mindset of plant in early spring or plant in mid to late fall. If you, Because then that way you have that much longer for a plant to get established before our summer hits. And so you could argue that fall planting is great because it has even that much longer before we hit the heat, you know, in June. Um, and then the fall, it's still warm enough that you still get some root growth. So things can get established, even if they are starting to go dormant, losing leaves. Once they're planted in the ground, you can still get some root development. And they're that much farther ahead before summer hits. So fall is a great time. Sometimes you can't wait long enough till the rains come because we don't, we don't know if that's going to happen till you know, even November. But even, you know, early October is a great time to plant because also things have started to shut down. So you don't have as much transplant shock, say, getting something planted and having to get used to the soil that's there. They won't go into so much shock. Now that's a good point. So let's talk a little bit more about your design, your landscape design work. Have you seen a change in what people are asking for when they come to you to help them design a landscape? Yes, good question. Yeah, from when we first started, I mean, even since we've lived here for 16 years now, I feel like we, we've seen a change in the climate just even in 16 years you know I feel like we had a lot more rain when we first moved here more fog um, maybe even colder winters you know we seem to not have as colder winters lately and just definitely less rain more extreme summers of course that everyone's having to deal with and of course wildfires so definitely people even more so this year people are wanting to rip out their lawns get a lot more requests of I want to replace my lawn with drought tolerant plants, a lot more requests for pollinator friendly plants, firewise gardens, um, definitely, you know, those would be the three big ones that have come up a lot more. Um, so it's great. People are being more conscious about their water usage. And then there's so many great plants that you can use that are drought tolerant. So it's not a sacrifice necessarily. It's just changing your mindset. You know, you might not have this big patch of green, but that you're adding in all of these drought tolerant pollinator friendly plants. You're adding so much more to the environment with that. You're supporting all kinds of wildlife by adding those different perennials and shrubs instead of just a pure lawn mm -hmm. and using less water. And so it just, yeah, people are starting to learn about drip irrigation and um, the timing of planting. So, yeah, now is the time. It's definitely started to pick back up. Well, what advice can you give to people who want to redesign their landscapes? I mean, most people don't start with a blank slate. They've got stuff there. So right. what do you tell them about, you know, making changes? Yeah, so we deal with that a lot, of working around established gardens or you know some plants they want to keep which is fine you know I, we're not into say rip, you know let's rip everything out there might be some things that are worth keeping and working around so usually when I go out to a garden we'll sort of talk about right what their overall vision what do they want to see for the space how do they want to use it um, and then we we'll sort of decide what's worth keeping in that what they really like 
you know, maybe it's a certain tree or a few different shrubs they've had for a long time or some things that are doing well, and we're going to work around those. And then editing out the things that aren't doing well or, again, not serving them in any way. You know, it doesn't give them joy. It's not adding anything to the landscape. So figuring out what to eliminate from there. And then you kind of have a base to start with. And so then we'll do a sketch or a drawing you can see the space and what we're going to keep and then that's a great way to then start the process of of adding in all those elements that you do want Um, is there a particular client story you'd like to share of a of a design landscape um that you've been working on or you have worked on gosh (laughs) so so many um Well, I mean, one that I'm just recently working on right now, which is kind of inspiring because I feel like I've gone through the same path and it is coming up a lot more, is, again, a multi-purpose landscape. They have a backyard, you know, that was mostly lawn, a few big trees that they're working around, but she wants to make an edible, pollinator-friendly landscape. Um, And I would say, you know, bringing up a lot of permaculture ideas of having multi-purpose plants, making all the pieces in your garden work for you, you know, having your compost that you produce that you're going to be adding to the garden. And so we're working on, she's solarizing the lawn, or most of it, keeping a little bit for her dog, and solarizing what's not needed, and then starting to make some berms or some beds that will have an edible area for veggies, um, some areas where there'll be permanent plantings of, say, strawberries and blueberries, some fruit trees mixed in, and so sort of that food forest idea Uh where you've got the taller elements of a fruit tree and then some shrubs that either are edible or adding nitrogen to the soil or pollinator-friendly, so you have sort of a medium layer, and then stepping down to your lower layers of perennials or lower growing edible plants um so then we're going to do like a carpet of creeping thyme which is good for smothering out weeds is drought tolerant but attracts bees as well with the flowers um having other pollinator attractors like cat mint and things and oregon creeping oregon grape so thinking about having pollinator plants throughout the season because bees start showing up and February, you know, with your heath that are blooming and your organ grape and your manzanitas and making sure you have plants that are blooming throughout the season to support your pollinators. Um, so it's, that's been a really fun project because I've, I've done sort of the same in my backyard of kind of creating these little pockets of food forests and having just a, a mix of plants and it doesn't always have to be a purely dedicated edible space, even though there are some sections that are just for veggies since it's easier to sort of dedicate a space to that instead of mixing your ornamentals and your, say, your tomatoes and lettuces. Well, it's definitely a multi-phase project, Um, starting off with site analysis, just figuring out what you have, what you're able to grow, and then working with the soil to make sure that the plants that you're going to be installing are going to thrive there. Yes, yeah, so assessing, so she's a little on the more clay side, and so I'm, we're encouraging to, yeah, make the things firm up a little bit or mound up a little bit to help increase the 
drainage, adding compost and mulching things really well with wood chips or straw or bark mulch to keep that um, moisture in and weed out and keep, you know, keep all the microorganisms and everything that's in your soil happy. So, right, it's dealing with the soil types that you have and then choosing plants that can handle that as well. I'm also very uh, interested in your uh, work with uh, the school gardens, designing and installing gardens at the local school. I love the way that you have gotten involved in your kids' schools that way. So tell us a little bit more about your work with the schools. Yeah, it's been really fun. Just as my kids have gone through elementary school, um, you know, sometimes the school will have a little bit of an established garden you know sometimes there's a little raised bed for edibles um and sometimes there's not much there and so i guess every time we started a school we've either found someone to work with who wants to add more to the school garden or you know we've kind of come in and said hey let's do this with the class and we'll start a planting project with my kids class um at may richardson we worked with church which is a local nonprofit that helps add school gardens or hands-on projects for kids and so we worked with my friend Tania who we got volunteer help with a local landscaper to say clear out a whole area that then we you know just a bunch of useless plants and just a useless area like the kids couldn't really use it it was too dense and so that all got cleared out and then we created some berms and planted it with different plants that make sense for school gardens. So edibles, pollinator-friendly plants, natives, things that are kid-friendly, you know, like lamb's ear that they want to pet, and ornamental grasses that have cool seed pods. So that was my thought process of, you know, we need plants that will sort of multisensory really plants. attention and make sense for our climate, too, because I say, you know, it's not much easier to, say, have an edible garden in California where you can grow things all year long, and, you know, our kids go to school September through June, so you sort of miss that summer produce season, but there's so many other things you can do that have a bloom interest, you know, in the fall or the early spring, so I really tried to make sure we had all those elements, um, and then, you know, we just, we've had some great teachers in the past that are really into getting their kids out in the garden and they would do journaling out there or do some of their math lessons out there you know it wasn't always about just pure gardening but just being in the space and the kids got to you know have a plant that they that they got to call theirs and help take care of and observe over the seasons and it's just been I just love nothing more than seeing that change and seeing that space get used that wasn't getting used before. Right. So you're getting at my next question. I wanted to ask you, why do you think these school gardens are so important? Well, gosh, I mean, one, it gets them outside. Right. It gets their hands dirty and gets them, you know, you can do a school, le- you can do a lesson on anything out in the garden. You can tie tie in writing or math or art project. You know, it just it's, it's a way to maybe integrate kids who are maybe you know, struggling sitting in the classroom for so long and so it's a way just to get in a different space and maybe do something more hands-on out there so I think there's just there's not enough you can't have enough opportunities for hands-on 
in school. Right. And so it, I, I think the garden, and then, you know, some kids just are really drawn to it. So, again, it's about getting different opportunities for every kid to find something that they are really engaged with or really enjoy. Because some kids, you know, would might rather be inside playing a, a game or something or doing some art project, but some kids are just always going to be oriented towards something outside or, like I said, getting their hands dirty. Right. Well, it could very well start a lifelong love of plants and gardening for these well, right. kids. And yeah, maybe, right, maybe you clicked with them on something. Or, yeah, some kids would be super into it. And, you know, like, look what I found, you know, this cool butterfly. Or just, you know, yeah, and knowing where your food comes from is huge. And some kids don't quite realize that yet. So getting to do all those projects, um, I just, you know, kind of give kids as many opportunities as they can to click into what they're passionate about you mentioned dirt now that was i had not heard of this uh local nonprofit. tell us a little bit more it sounds very exciting yes you should talk to tania she would be great i another podcast i plan to <laughs> she is a dynamo and gets things done and so she i think she and i talked Initially, with the first garden, she wanted to do in an alleyway at Central Point, you know, turning this little nothing spot into a little bit of an urban garden um, that some kids from a local daycare could come over and use. And so that was like our first project together. And, you know, she's gone beyond and done several other projects. And then in connection with Spurman Arboretum in Central Point, um, helping to fix that up and make that more of a space that people can come through and enjoy and help do a partially native landscape design for that area and pollinator-friendly plants there. Um, and then she's got a lot of new projects in the works that would be worth talking to her about as, as a much bigger uh, location in Central Point that she's going to start to convert, hopefully into, a again, hands-on learning opportunities for kids. Oh, Christy, what a wonderful project. What a wonderful thing to do for our local community. Well, there's just, there's so much, there's so much opportunity for it. And it's just, you know, I guess every time I get out there, it's, it's, it's all about that one person of like making it happen. You know, we can have all these ideas floating around and like, oh, this sounds great. Let's do this. But, you know, you need that instigator and Tania is is definitely that and I think she's added so much to Central Point and just trying to make things happen because sometimes it can be kind of a slow process. Yes, isn't it fun to meet up with like-minded folks and, and work together with them? Yes, it's very inspiring and that's what, just, like I said, it, make, it shows me like you need that, you need that person, you need that person with that energy to make things happen. Now, speaking of being inspired, you mentioned that you've been inspired by Lorene Edwards Forkner. Now, I know her as the editor of Pacific Horticulture, and I have her book, Vegetable Gardening in the Pacific Northwest. But you mentioned that you've been inspired by her garden designs and color studies. Uh, yeah. Tell Which us is, I know, like a real side thing, because I know I forget that she's the editor of Pacific Horticulture, and she's right, a real plants person and super into vegetable gardening and writes articles for the Seattle paper. But, right, I came across her through a friend who follows her on Instagram, and she does color studies 
on a daily, like as a daily practice. She does color studies of something she might find in the garden. That could be a flower or a leaf, you know, just something really subtle. But I find it so beautiful and inspiring because it's just about, it's like slowing down and noticing the colors. So how does she use these color studies? She, I just, just for her, so they're watercolors, and they're just for her, and she posts them, and always has a beautiful little thought with it, but, and, and she sells the print sometimes I... as well, and she has a, a newsletter and, like, a website under Gardner Cook, I believe, and so I think it's just, I think it's like a practice that she got into, but I just, I think they're so beautiful, <laughs> it ties in all I guess all my interest from plants to just pure color. Um, well, I'm looking at one right now, um, and it's a beautiful but very simple, like you said, color study of the rose hip. You know, mm-hmm, and it's got all mm-hmm. it's got nine different colors that she has discerned within this uh, sprig with the rose hip and the stem and the leaves, and it's just it's beautiful in its simplicity. It is. It's so simple, but right, it makes you slow down and you're like, wow, yeah, there's a lot of different tones and shades in anything that you look at, and especially in the plant world. And so, right, it's just kind of slowing down and noticing all that, Well, and, and, which again, that would be a great exercise for kids to do. And honestly, when the pandemic first started and we didn't have school, like my kids and I did that in the spring for a while. We just did color studies occasionally and it was my daughter really kind of got into it because it, again it just sort of slows you down gets you to notice You're like oh there's an orange tone that I didn't notice before and I think it would be great for for kids like you're saying but all gardeners to really yeah. get into the color nuances that are right there in their garden right in front of them for sure and then it makes you think of like right how they relate to each other You're like oh well those two things could go together really nicely and I didn't quite noticed before yeah it just tie it totally ties in with the gardener eye and the artist eye and you don't have to be a great artist either you know you're just extracting out the colors you just have to be a good observer yes which is so much a huge part of gardening it's all about observing absolutely and no and, no, and noticing you know you don't have to be great it's, it's just about slowing down and noticing what the plant is trying to tell you <laughs> I found a great quote by Lorene that I wanted to share with you. It's kind of long, but here it is. She, she writes, I'd love to see a world where the best parts of tending a garden and working in horticulture, nurturing, and connection become a part of the fabric of society. Beauty is a seductive invitation to tend to the larger world. Delicious flavors keep us tethered to real food. Nuanced colors keep us learning to see. And hopefully, our personal digging in the garden promotes respect and support for all. I love that well, quote. I wanted to uh, ask you what strikes you about that. Yeah, I love all of that. <laughs> it's, it's true. And that's what I think I love about gardening and being in the plant world. It, does, it makes you appreciate nature and how subtle and powerful it is all at the same time and I you know there's nothing I enjoy more than just like puttering around in my garden sort of you know from edibles to ornamentals just sort of all of it um because it does it makes you it's almost kind of like a meditation it makes you slow down 
and just appreciate all those details and you just get very immersed in it and you can, you know, sort of block out everything else going on. And We certainly need uh, that sometimes, don't we? We need that for sure. <laughs> and I think that's why people have gotten so into plants and gardening, you know, the past year and a half with the pandemic because, right, it, it gives you something that we're all needing. Wow. Well, thank you, Christy, for all of the work that you have done in our community to increase access to gardens, gardening, and plants. I don't know how we could do it without you. Oh, we so enjoy it. And I just, again, we love that, right, there's a little improvement that we've made or added a little greenery to the world and are getting someone to try something new. So we really enjoy it. Well, thanks again for being on the program. Thank you.